0: Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, a worker's guide to everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics, this is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas tardes. I'm joined today by usual Sean Byers, sorry actually Dr. Sean Byers, he's very busy this morning, I know that, very busy at the moment, he's given us an hour of his time, um, and also by Sean Fear and a very good comrade of ours, a currently a PhD candidate at Queen's University of Belfast looking at finance and a just transition, also an environmental activist and political activist, you're very welcome lads, we're here today to talk about, I suppose, um, the subject of a transition to a democratic green sustainable and kind of star trek like utopian future and one in which we don't have to worry about confronting the runaway power of capital or imperialism it will just happen apparently because it's the right thing to do uh, without any struggle without any pain it's all good but we are going to talk about that particular issue about how this project of the green transition will have to confront capital and will have to confront imperialism and we'll do that in a podcast pre-christmas but we're going to start today with a chat about some of the ideas and some of them are very good ideas over the next this podcast and possibly another podcast um are floating around some of which have been implemented on a kind of tiny scale um that show us how moving beyond fossil fuels and this current kind of extractive system is possible and saving our wee planet is possible now of course there's a big issue of power which we have to get into on a future podcast but today we'll concentrate on uh, the issues of green finance and the green new deal and just transition and those kinds of ideas if you're interested and we're going to start here in ireland and then we'll expand the debate out um, and if you'll excuse the kind of slight lazy and the irish racism of the british press they had a headline in one of their papers a few years ago that described a renewable energy scandal in ireland here we know it as rhi or cash for Ass, the renewable heat and, uh, heat incentive as enron on craggy island which i know is partly less, <laughs> but i still thought it was funny and, uh, and if you remember, Enron, back 20 years ago uh, when a uh, bankruptcy of a massive corporation and Arthur Anderson, one of the largest accounting firms on the planet, collapsed with it, um, it was worth about $64 billion, about the same amount as the Irish bailout of 10 years ago. Um, but the cash for ash scandal was a huge scandal, Sean, and I want to come to you first and tell, tell people who have not heard of it, because it kind of got subsumed, didn't it, um, with the collapse of the assembly and then with COVID, but it, was, it is a huge scandal. Give us some of the background to it, mate.
1: Well, I mean, it was huge uh, politically. It had a massive political cost to it as well. But I think it it goes to show, um, I mean, the folly of policymakers here in Britain, when you have a, a policy objective about how you want to achieve, say, greater renewable energy share, whatever it is, you instantly have to get some sort of contrived fucking complex mechanism to get the market to do it. Um, so, I mean, the, the scandal behind the was the tariff rates that were, were given, the amount of subsidies were given for people burning wood pellets, which is by no means the cleanest energy source available to here, especially considering the fucking the, the sheer amount of green energy that's there. But the one in on the news at the minute is this brass for muck scandal, which is per, potentially equally as as how the Irish or whatever in its, in its name. But it's this Nairo scandal um and it's you know i think the ultimate cost behind rhi that they said was going to cost the state was about half a billion or something like this that's was, a lot of, that's
0: a lot of money for a small little place like this money.
1: huge huge and, and i mean it was going to be over the course of decades this one that they estimate because the nairo scheme this northern ireland renewables obligation, uh that was going to be taken out till 20 or thereabouts uh, it was ultimately going to cost consumers or people that are buying electricity up to five billion. Um, and that's partly because it ended up resulting in the same scheme that RHI did, but this time through anaerobic digesters, which you know, I think, and I mean, the evidence is out there, there's just a clear link between it and the agricultural sector here, which is our big business, it's our big corporation and they're a capture over um, you know, the, the government in the North. So, I mean, essentially you've got generators within the scheme. So anyone, this is the Nairo scheme now, anyone who wants to generate renewable electricity. So it could be solar panels, you buy, you know, whatever is you've had on the roof, or a wee small wind turbine or whatever else, uh, you generate renewable electricity. Offgem set up the scheme in 2005, they give you rocks for these. So they're renewables, obligation certificates, and they're effectively the currency of the scheme, right? So as a generator, you have it, then you pass it on uh, to providers of electricity. So these are the ways that pump, electricity in the homes and businesses, your power and electricity and that sort of stuff. And they have an obligation placed on them that they have to have a certain amount of these rocks per the amount of electricity that they're providing every year. Uh, you know, Offgem gives them that one as well. So they have to buy them off the generators. Um, so then they go back to Offgem at the end of the year and say, look, we've made our rock quota for the year. We have, you know, the amount of certificates that we need, um, hey, presto, it's all done. But they pass the cost of these, once they buy the rocks, they pass the cost of these on the consumers. So they, they're ending up paying for it. Um, the problem arises when that I think in 2005, when the scheme was set up, um, it was agreed that the North would have maybe about a third of the of the obligation that Britain would have. So uh, you know, the, the ultimate amount of rocks, these certificates that the providers needed would be a bit a third of the level that that providers to homes and say, Doncaster or Brighton would have needed you know, to provide electricity. Um, and so, you know, they had there was, there was a lower amount of them, but the generators, the people who were creating the electricity and getting the rocks and making the money could sell them wherever they wanted uh, across Britain or wherever else. So, uh, you know, they, they were making money hand over fist, but there was a lower obligation on the providers to send them you know, to people's homes and all that sort of stuff. So the cost was lower, but the generators of, of the electricity were making a king fortune. And now what kind of, of
0: money are we talking about?
1: Well, the the, the ultimate cost, I think uh, that, so 5 billion was the ultimate cost at the end of the scheme. But what happened was, and this is the link to um, you know, the agricultural sector here. I mean, in about 2010, after the scheme was running for five years, Arlene Foster was the minister then and says here, hang on a wee minute, it's only wind that's coming on board you know that's that's getting these rocks to incentivize new renewable energy what about anaerobic digestion so they put out a wee call for evidence to put out a, you know for people to come on board and say well why isn't anaerobic digestion coming on board and basically this audit office report that came out recently says the evidence that came back to her was dominantly from the sector that's that stood to gain
0: which is which is the farming sector the very powerful farming, farming sector, lobby
1: all that. yeah massive white parking all in place um, and so what they did was basically double the amount of rocks that, you know, when these are obviously the currency, that's how they get paid, double the amount of rocks that anaerobic digesters would get overshare solar panels or wind turbines or anything yeah. else. Uh, and so they start to make, you know, a fortune over that. It's,
0: uh, it's, it's amazing, Sean, isn't it? that There's two massive scandals now emerging in Northern, the tiny wee place here. I mean, you've got RHI and then this latest one, the Northern Iron Renewables Obligation. We're talking billions of pounds of profits, of subsidies, and what does it tell us, one, about, I suppose, the nature of this place a little bit, you know, but also what does it point to about the nature of the green transition and what it's going to look like over the next couple of years?
2: Well, I'm not going to pretend that I understood anything Sean just said there, (laughs) but but one thing I picked up on reading about this this latest scandal is that... uh, it, what's supposed to happen is you're supposed to start with these sort of green schemes. You're supposed to start with high levels of subsidies um, and then decrease the subsidy gradually as these technologies become established. And what happened was Foster did the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> she, increased awesome. uh, she increased the subsidies, made it more generous as, the, as these systems were becoming established and as the subsidies were being uh, reduced in, in Britain. So that tells you a lot about the you know the state of how things are, are done here. I think it tells us two things. Um, as Sean has sort of alluded to, it, it gives you an indication of the, the power of, of civil servants who are coming up with these contrived mechanisms and bamboozling politicians who don't have the capacity to articulate or, or think of a, a, an alternative. Um, but also just in terms of the DUP, I mean, the, D, the DUP has been implicated in... Successive scandals. Um, Red Sky. We're we a wee bit pro real here, but Red Sky, Nama, or HI. Uh, you had the Paisley who was going on holidays at that on the ex- at the expense of the Sri Lankan government, um, and and now this, um, and the DUP because of mandatory coalition here, and because the DUP uh, are seen to be sticking it up to the Shiners. Um, they can do whatever the fuck they want and they'll still get re-elected. And then, you know, that, that just tells you a, a lot about the state of this place. In terms of, the, I was just going to move on in terms of the, 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 what tells you about the green transition and, and how things are likely to be done here in, in the North. We do have a, a particular obsession here with throwing money at the private sector. Now, whether it's through these, for a quick fix, you know, whether it's through these individual schemes, um, our bodies such as Invest NI, um, which has spent the last decade handling subsidies to corporations with, with little to show for it in terms of decent, secure, well-paid jobs. Um, more recently, we've seen the Department of Finance established a 100 million uh, Northern Ireland Investment Fund um, and handed it over to CBRE. Maybe Sean will talk a wee bit more about this. There's real estate from. Now the purpose of this, one of the main purposes of this was that CBRE was supposed to be handing loans to, uh, giving loans to clean energy projects. But it, as it transpires, most of this money has has gone into real estate. Now what the fuck else would you expect if you're the 100 million over to one of the biggest real estate firms in, in the UK? Where, where's it going to go? Um, now all of the big planning and investment decisions around decarbonisation here and elsewhere will need to be made by the state, but but here we haven't seen the the like a modest effort to to promote this you know the entrepreneurial state that Mazzucato talks about. So long-term public investment in research and development, state-led innovation, state-owned green enterprises, and and so on. And we haven't seen anything. Uh, uh, resembling that um and and that that would be a modest step in the direction that, that we need to travel but but i'm not there to hopeful.
1: i know Ian, you're spot on about that that investment fund as well and i think its original purpose was to have you know to start helping green energy schemes and community energy projects and over on the cost for all that there sort of stuff but i mean when you talk to them about it and ask them how much have you done of that, i will not just yet tech, but we'll figure something out sort of a um, no, but I, I think you're right about the the, the, the role of the state here. Um, and I mean, there's evidence out there. There's a great study by the Breakthrough Institute uh, a few years ago, looking in the 20th century, the most successful attempts at decarbonisation um, in that time were driven by you know state investment, state-owned assets or whatever else. And it goes back to the two schemes we're talking about, whether it's half a billion for RHI or five billion, you know, ultimately paid through electricity bills for this narrow scheme. And, um, you know that that's a hell of a lot of money that people are paying. That could instead be used to accumulate state assets. You know, like a, a state renewable energy company that could be used to, you know, get a return at the end of the year to reinvest back into the energy infrastructure and all this sort of stuff. So, um, I mean, that, that's the that, that's the I think the folly of all of this, I and mean, it is partly a, a myopia amongst civil servants that they can't. Think of something else. But then you often hear, well, so that's state aid. We can't do it. There's certain I amount mean, of rules around it and all the rest. But well, RHI and the Niro scheme were both state aid. They got state aid approval. So you can get around that. You know, there's no effort being made by economy ministers to go and say, look, we have an idea here. We want that a, a, a renewable energy company owned by the executive, you know, because it's devolved and um, that will be fairly integrated, will we'll, you know generate the energy through offshore, onshore wind, will put it into people's homes and whatever returns then we have used to invest in green energy infrastructure that's a sensible model and there's just no attempt to, to do it you
0: know yeah just in the, that that link between the kind of parochial nature of this place and the, the hilarious levels of corruption that took place um here and then green finance and the, and the way forward is it's is, is kind of crystallized in, in the north of ireland i mean for people who don't know i mean there were people literally eating empty chicken sheds you know, for for dec- for like for months and months and months with these wood pellet boilers and there was one farmer apparently he was empty. he was he was uh he in an empty chicken shed and he was gonna earn one million quid over like ten years or something, you know. So he was being paid to heat things that didn't need heated. But the scandals in the north, apart from that kind of parochial parish pump um corruption, they're also a symptom, as you both pointed to, of an ideological obsession. It's not just about this place, it's kind of everywhere across across the world, with the free market delivering decarbonisation, because of course there are alternatives to that. Um, when, when, as we've said, and we'll talk about it later, it's the sector or the, or the, or the public sector or the state that should be doing some of the heavy lifting on this. Um, and it's quite clear that capital is moving right into this space. The ones that have been convinced, okay, look, we're going to have to move away from fossil fuels. That's the way the world's going. So we want to make sure that we're in when the money starts flowing. Um, and as you said, even before capital was made that decision, our public policy kind of areas have been captured already by that kind of thinking. They don't need to be persuaded that only the private sector can deliver on this. And we've met that, we meet that all the time in dealing with the public sector here. It struck me first, I'll just gonna tell you a quick story. I was at a conference in Germany a couple of years ago, and there was a really interesting workshop on the greening of cities, you know, about making cities resilient to the inevitability of climate breakdown and its effects. And there was some really interesting suggestions on this kind of workshop, um, it was in Munich in Germany. And I thought, I'll go along to that and I'll listen to that. And I was a bit suspicious Immediately of the facilitators, because you know, your man had that kind of neoliberal uniform, you know, the blue azure suit and the brown clown shoes. And, and the woman next to him, that was uh, she looked like she's dipped in lacquer, no all perfect and shiny and brilliant. I thought these two are a bit too smart to be people involved in green politics. And only about halfway through the seminar, they revealed they worked for Goldman Sachs. And what this workshop was about was about how the private sector would fund the greening of cities. And it's clear that financing the transition. Um, will be less about direct government financing or municipal bonds or green municipal—all all these things you hear about—and will be about these kind of massive, you know, pr- public-private part- partnerships going to the future, isn't it? Is that really what green financing? I'll go to you, Sean, us first. Is that what green finance is going to look like over the next ten years? Is it just going to be a free-for-all for capital?
2: Well, unfortunately, that's where it's at. It. Um, so, from the World Bank and the UN right down to the national level the focus is about providing sort of market-based nudges and incentives to encourage the private sector to invest in a low carbon transition. Um, So the the, uh, World Bank program is called maximizing finance for development and basically that's what it is, it's these massive PPE projects. So you have the public sector or the governments of the global south primarily um, putting up their public money to take the risk out of private investments in the infrastructure that they need for a green transition and for you know for public services uh, and so on. So that they're guaranteeing they're forced to guarantee effectively the profits uh, of private companies for activities that aren't profitable. <laughs> there's no like, there's no profit to be made in a fucking like take the Irish example for uh, in a motorway. Uh, in, in building a motorway or to upgrade your rail infrastructure. There's no profit in that, uh, in the infrastructure itself. But what you have the state doing is coming in and paying these companies to build them and to, and to operate them. And what that does is it, it transfers massive risk onto uh, the citizens of individual countries um, and massive levels of, of debt uh, onto these countries in the foreseeable future. I mean, all the studies that have been done have shown that these uh PPE projects with small smaller ones at a national level and the big mega ones uh, you know, cost much more to the state in in the long run than it actually it would cost for the state to just just build it, it itself. But unfortunately that, that's that's where it's headed. Um, and I noticed that the, the Irish government in its uh, national development plan has you know has sort of indicated that that's going to be part of that's going to be part of the solution in Ireland. As PPEs and, and providing these sorts of uh, incentives to, to the private sector to, to provide the infrastructure and investment that, that the state needs.
0: It, it is amazing, isn't it, when we have so much evidence about the folly of public-private partnerships, about the fact that they don't work, the fact that they cost, I think the figures from the UK public-private partnership kind of package that they're gonna cost five times more than the assets they built. So then we're going to pay, you know, it's like building a house for 100 grand and paying back five times as much as you need to if you just built it yourself, if you had the skills to build it yourself. And we do see a a raft of these new green public private partnerships emerging. And as you said, Sean, how's that being paid for when you, you know, when the private system builds that stuff and uses its own capital? Well, it wants that capital back plus interest. So it just means imposing debts, massive amounts of debt on future generations. It's it's fucking ludicrous when you think about it. And you also have these kind of public subsidies for transition to green energy, going to Google, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, they're all being subsidised already by us, whilst at the same time, they're investing massively in brown and fossil fuel. Sean, what about this green financing? Are we, are we fucked or is there any hope that, or is this really the direction of travel? That it's gonna be the private sector that's gonna pay for the, this pretend green transition?
1: It's increasingly looking that way. And I mean, as you brought up the, the, the Climate Action Plan in the South. I mean, th- there are big sort of mechanisms, this 500 million pound fund, 500 million euro that was that, that's a vast amount of money the state could be using as we say to develop these you know the assets that are owned by the state and we know even up until the 90s the north owned its own electricity scotland had had massive success with hydroelectricity and developing it in the 50s you know and all that sort of stuff so there's evidence there that as you say it's more cost effective but it's also there's better outcomes for people uh, on the on the consumption side uh, but i think I mean, the finance is one element of it, but what you're seeing as well is the change of debate over to the consumption side and the individual about how it's going to be funded. So that's your taxation and all that sort of stuff. And the carbon tax is just a coup. Uh, that's that's changed the game, I, I think, in the debate in the in the South of Ireland. Um, and I mean, when the committee was in Dublin um, and the, the Committee for Climate Action in the South was, was looking at this and they had John Fitzgerald on, the hitman economist for the, for the Irish establishment, who's Gary Fitzgerald's son. Um, you know, he was quoting. He had this beautiful phrase: "You're a carbon tax denier." You know, so you're equivalent to a climate change denier if you don't agree with all this sort of stuff. And he was quoting 27. You know, Nobel Prize-winning economists. You know, say we need this and all this sort of stuff. And the former head of the UNFCCC, who and she said as well. You know, we need to ally with big oil if we're ever going to, you know, uh, address the climate crisis. Uh, you look where these economists have been looking. It's from the Climate Leadership Council, right? This is where the idea originated from. And was, was propagated, founded by Shell, BP, ExxonMobil, the American automobile industry, Wall Street investment firms, all that. They want this to be shifted away from the state uh, and away onto private capital for the upfront upfront costs, and then they want it onto the individual. That it's their responsibility. It's we Betty down the road here with no gas means, and the oil is too expensive. She has to pay for the brick out of coal. You know, it's if it's her fault for fucking ecological collapse.
0: Yeah, the, the surprise there, well, not, it's not really a surprise, is it, is that the environmental movement, and particularly the Irish Green Party, are never more happy than when they're punishing the working class for the crimes of, of capitalism, you know. As you said, we bet you that going to pay for ecological collapse by having a taxes increase. I want to ask you a quick question, Sean, because I don't know very much about this, but I keep hearing stories about, is carbon trading still part of that package or not? Because I read an article yesterday just in the Irish press about Mobile in Ireland, we're now doing carbon offsetting, we're going to plant 10,000 trees, we're not going to do anything to Rest of their business, but they will not set the burning of carbon by planting a few trees around Ireland. And I was aware of that one that Statoil, the Norwegian giant, state owned mostly, has bought a forest in East Africa to offset its use of carbon, and which has led to like forced evictions, food scarcity, fucking starvation of local populations. It's like this new kind of green colonialism or green imperialism is being imposed on the global south, so that we in the global north go, well, actually, we're doing something, but we're we're actually making things worse. So, is carbon trading still part of this whole? Um, kind of way
1: forward well i mean the ETS system as you're saying still exists i mean there's a few uh, really key cases of like as you're saying big, big uh, uh, oil and, and gas companies in europe funding massive chemical plants operations just dirty dirty shit, all around the, all around the world um you know to try and offset the cost of, of you know the carbon credits they were buying and all this uh, so yeah, it, it is a part of it, um, and I think it's you know it's not going to change because although I think it's changed and there's there's a wee bit a there was a flaw with it as it developed, um, you mean it's still a massive part of the solution because you know this carbon pricing element is just an idea of trying to you know increase the cost of consumption of carbon, which has a place and there's some evidence for it and all that sort of stuff. But it's not going to drive the, the dramatic, you know, vast uh, decarbonisation that we need in such a short period of time, I and mean, it is a soft industry.
2: Just to throw in a wee anecdote like <laughs> tells you about how fucked up things are in the South. Um, back in 2011, the, when Ireland was in the teeth of financial crisis, um, the government helped establish a green IFSC um, in, in Dublin, right? <laughs> With the help of a 6.8 million euro subsidy, um, and Brian T, Brian Cown, the T at the time, said it was going to create thousands of jobs and all this sort of stuff. Like, but all I ended up doing was uh, creating new revenue revenue streams in carbon trading and the securitization of carbon carbon offsets. So they're trading in these things. That's the only thing that, that the Green IFC ended up doing. It ended up being fucking euthanized, and it was replaced by something called. I think a sustainable nation, Ireland, or sustainable finance, Ireland, or something like that, but it, you know, it serves the same purpose.
0: You've got, you've done a lot of research on green finance, Sean. It, we, we, you'd be the man to go to if we had maybe find a small pension pot that I could get out of the credit union. I've got a couple of grand sitting, you know. What I mean, maybe I could buy some of these, these carbon trading futures. But it, it, it seems as if that carbon trading, carbon offsetting thing is just a, is just a kind of cause-related marketing. It just makes companies that are burning fossil fuels look good on the face of it, and they can continue to do what they're doing normally. I mean, as you said, there's, there's nowhere near the kind of fundamental shifts we need to see happening, is it? Um, in terms of where you can really see this kind of, well, I don't want to say nailed on future, because let's hope we can change it, but the European, it used to be called the EU Green New Deal, but I understand they dropped the word new out of it because they didn't want it to sound like Roosevelt's New Deal and kind of be accused of creeping socialism. You know, So I think they call it the EU Green Deal now, don't they? Um, and you can see so many of these elements we've been talking about, kind of hardwired into that particular program of the EU Green Deal. And um, wanted to talk a little bit about that because uh, you know it's uh, on the face of it, it's a trillion euro fund. It's massive changes, but the EU Green Deal um, is a uh, it seems that like a program, as you said earlier, is sort one of simply nudging the market towards investing in some kinds of decarbonisation if the contracts they get are protected or guaranteed by the state and if all the risk is removed. Um, it's kind of de-risking their investments in any kind of green future. Um, and it's about turning climate mitigation into profit, isn't it? Is that, is that basically what the EU green deal is? Is there anything else in it that I can kind of hang my hopes on? i got go to you first, Sean.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, look, I mean, the, you're saying about it. The, the ultimate cost. I think they're saying was about 1 trillion euro or thereabouts. Uh, so about 100 billion over 10 years and all this sort of stuff. But only 7.5 billion of it is actually new money through this just transition mechanism that they're gonna to start to use to invest. Um, but I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's all about using the resources of the ECB to leverage uh, private finance and give them new profitable opportunities. Um, and I mean, there's just there's this quote, doesn't there, about you know, don't, don't tell me what your priorities are as a government or as a, as a state, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what the priorities are. Even compare that 1 trillion to the over 2 trillion that was used to pump liquidity into the Euro system and the private finance through quantitative easing uh, after 2014. And it shows you how seriously the, the European Union and the ECB are taking this. If it's supposed to be you know, this dramatic transformation in the economy to fucking get us away from existential dread, you mean it, it's not there. You know?
0: Yeah, it's entirely underwhelming, I have to say, when you look into the detail of it. I mean, it is about unlocking finance. It's not about committing finance, certainly not from the ECB or from the state. Um, And it's also about the stuff and about the continued liberalization of our utilities, including water, continued privatization, and of course, pushing GDP growth. I mean, von der Leyen said that this is about making sure that the EU growth strategy is, is nailed in and locked into this thing. So rather than move towards another form of measurement of growth, another type of growth, all of the ideas that we might get to talk about on our next podcast, they're just locking in the system that currently exists with more of this kind of Greenwashing—is that what this is, John? Is this just a, a massive greenwashing program, the EU Green Deal?
2: Well, it's basically as both of you said, like I mean, it's it's massively about you know sh- shifting the risk onto the EU public while the private sector enjoys any that, that it gets from from investment. Um, you look at the Just Transition Mechanism; included, it contains no guarantees at all that the money will reach the workers who need it. There's already complaints uh, from places like Romania and other uh, and, and other countries that uh that the just transition funds that have been spent already have just gone straight to the, the companies, and there's been no retraining or reskilling the workers. There's been no you no redundancy packages or you know protections put in place for the workers. So there's that. And then you look at what the EU's doing in in other areas and what other arms of the, the EU are doing. You know, you have the ECB's massive corporate sector purchasing programme, which includes no requirement at all that the, the companies align their behaviours with a zero carbon pathway. The European Investment Bank was supposed to be the EU's big green investment bank, but it's still providing money to new green or gas infrastructure projects. Um, there's a new taxonomy uh, being developed. There is a classification system on green lending and investment, but it's just a massive exercise in, in greenwashing. It allows people to to label their activities as as green if they're on a pathway to to to, to sustainability or something like that. So it's the total exercise in greenwashing. So it's a bit like it's
0: a bit like letting BP change their logo to a sunflower and paying for that logo, but they don't have to change fundamentally anything BP doesn't on, on the planet.
2: And then that, yeah, that, and that's it. And then what happens then is, is, is money investment flows towards these sorts of activities so they're labeled as green and you have pension funds and you have states and every all manner of things investing in in these activities they might be labeled green and sustainable but they're fucking they're not at all they're highly carbon intensive and they may or may not be on a pathway to a more sustainable sort of uh, uh you know area but uh and then of course just just finally um the the common agricultural policy, the CAP, has has just been renewed, which all but and in its entirety, no changes to it, uh, which all but guarantees the destruction of the environment and the continued impoverishment of of African farmers. So
0: I'm glad you I'm glad you segue into that, Sean, because I was gonna provide our special section on and now folks, we're gonna kick the EU in the balls, but you started that for me. So thanks very much for taking that taking that responsibility from me. Sean, you wanted to
1: come in there, mate. Uh, yeah, no, look, I mean, just back to the the, the bond buying program, and it, I mean, there were studies done on the last round of QE in about 2014, 15, um, that about two-thirds of it went into the four dirtiest industries in Europe. So as you're saying, this was supposed to, you know, make its way into real economic activity and get demand up and create jobs and all that type of crack, uh, but it just ended up inflating asset prices and all that. So, I mean, it remains to be seen what the effect of this round will be on carbon emissions and all the rest of it. But I mean, we can be maybe dutifully pessimistic because carbon uh, emissions during economic recoveries are much higher than carbon reductions are during uh, recessions and all that sort of stuff because who, where does this finance need to go? It needs to go to cheap, you know, quick returns for dividends, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's not going to be this patient long-term investment that we need to be. Any sort of bond-buying program that we have now will almost inevitably see emissions rise in the short term.
2: Yeah, I think what global emissions have dropped by like 4% or something, um, sure, during, yeah. during the pandemic, and they're bound to sort of rebound to much, much higher levels in the event of uh, an economic recovery. But just see just on that with the ECB's corporate sector bomb person program, I think Carbon Tracker, uh, the Carbon Tracker project has already done some research on this, and they found that fossil fuel companies are fucking piling into this, like, because there's absolutely no there's no limits on it, and uh, there's no, there's no conditionality attached at all, so you have ExxonMobil and all the big fossil fuel giants weighing into this, because they know the writing's on the wall, and they know they might as well take this while they can, like, um, and it's, you know, it's effectively free money for, for them.
0: So basically, it's our conclusion, and there's actually nothing of any worth in the European uh, Green Deal, and, uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's and uh, and in fact, Polish miners who have lost their job in the coal industry have not been retrained as brand managers by their pre- previous employers, but are simply on the fucking dole like everyone else. Um, look, or last question. For-
2: yeah. <laughs> um.
0: I want a last quick question, though, and it leads into what we can talk about next week, I think, is that um the failures of these supranational bodies to do anything really of any worth to tackle these, as you said, this existential crisis, Sean, and the existential dread that goes along with that crisis. Um. Is it retreating to national programs can't be the answer either, can it? When we do need massive international cooperation, don't we, on tackling climate breakdown. But when you have these supranational bodies captured completely by by capital, by neoliberal thinking, it, it tends to take us back, doesn't it? To, well, we'll do something locally, we'll do something nationally. And, and people and activists like ourselves think, well, I can't do anything about that, but maybe do something in my local community. But that disconnect is quite dangerous, isn't it?
1: it is and look and as you say look we might pick it up next week but the it, it back to some of the structural issues here um that ireland faces because all the monetary power whatever that the south might be able to use and you know, I mean this has deficit limits and all this sort of stuff that it can use to borrow and invest or whatever that's held centrally in europe and then for the north i mean it's held centrally in westminster so you do have for the, there are real conditions based on the state here and um, that you know they will have to change but as you say Whitehall and second Brussels are equally
0: in capture, you know. Sean, sure, last word to you, mate, on this before we close, and we'll come back next week and we'll take these, we'll take these ideas further through the, and talk about the vehicles through which we might be able to achieve some change. But last word to you about that. I mean, that disconnect between these supranational bodies and the direction of travel and then kind of where we are politically as activists and as political actors.
2: Well, I, th- I think that a just transition to a low-carbon economy has to be, an international project it has to be based on the principles of internationalism but that's not to say that we need to invest all our faith in supranational bodies to achieve it i mean it's been 20, 20 years or so since the kyoto prot- protocol like and we've we've stood still since then and you know there there's there's a sort of cynical argument to say that all the focus on super supranational sort of bodies and, and the initiatives that they're coming forward to is, is designed exactly to, to you know distract attention from what actually needs to be done at a at a national level. I think Anne for put it well, like she said, that that it needs to be uh, the green New Data and a just transition. So one needs to be part of a collaborative rather than a singular project. Um one that relies on the external cooperation but takes uh, different conditions in into account and it's implemented by locally and nationally accountable institutions um, that reflect domestic conditions rather than invest in all of our faith in, in the likes of the EU, the UN, the World Bank, the IMF, because it's, you know, that's a, gonna get us anywhere.
0: All right, well, that, that sets us up perfectly for the next podcast, Sean, where we're gonna talk directly about these vehicles, if you like, for this um, intergenerational change we need to see, the Green New Deal, the just transition and so forth. So thanks very much for your contributions today, lads. Uh, we'll see you next time, and we'll get stuck into the Green New Deal and a just transition. All right, so good luck. I'm more. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper Workers and Slang of Foil.